Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is where we're going to be this morning. Um, We are... Um, doing kind of a mini-series on 1 Thessalonians. Last week we talked about the importance of prayer and how that even finds its way in the context of Paul's letter to to the church at Thessaloniki um, and how they experienced much hardship because they were followers of Jesus in an incredibly pagan context and yet how God equipped them and how God furthered the message of the kingdom through them. Um, They were truly people of the text. They were people who heard from the apostles and heard the word of God through the Hebrew Bible and they sought to live it out by God's grace. And as they did that, um, the message of Jesus spread throughout the entire region. Um, They're also, uh, one of the things that we've encouraged you, us to be, is is to become a people of the text and people of prayer. Um, being a student of the scripture is one way in which, a very important way in which we know God more fully. Uh, because as we know God's revealed will to us and we live that out by the power of his Holy Spirit, that, that enables us to have an ever-increasing relationship with God. But the, the other component to that that we've talked about over the last several weeks and months is to become a people of prayer. And I want to thank you even now for spending some time over the past week praying for people um, who face severe persecution. We spent some time doing that last week. And and I trust that you uh, found helpful the take-home of 10 Ways to Pray from the book of 1 Thessalonians for persecuted Christians throughout the world. Um, And so we invite you into this next couple weeks where we're going to be talking about this idea of what does it mean to walk the walk. And, And to do this, sometimes we look at like whole chapters at a time. Time, like in our Acts study. And sometimes we zoom in and we look at just a few words. And that's what we're going to be doing over the course of the next couple weeks. And we're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 16, 17, and 18. Those three verses, one verse each week. And, and they form actually a, a triunity here. And, and the reason we know that is because in the Greek, each one of these phrases begins with a second person plural imperative. Uh, we'll talk more about that in just a minute. But, but they're joined together by this command that Paul has for the church at Thessaloniki. Act like this. Do this. You must follow in this. And I believe that these truths that we're going to be studying are very appropriate to our day and age and even during this time of year. And so kids, if you have your children's sermon notes, your words for this morning are going to be this. They're not in your bulletin, but they're going to be rejoice is going to be one word. And then the other word is going to be the word serious. Serious, okay? Rejoice and serious. Two words that you might think are very opposite of each other, but hopefully we'll kind of combine them in a way that will help us learn to seriously rejoice in the Lord today. And so, thank you for joining us this morning. And um, with that said, would you stand once again with me for the reading of the scripture? 
as we read the text this morning, feel free to look at your copy of the, of the scripture for the first time, but we're actually going to do this a couple times because one of the things I want to do over the course of the next three weeks is help get this get these few verses in our bones. And so, here is the word of the Lord, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Hear that again. Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I want to do something special now. I want you to say this with me, or say this after me. I'll say a phrase, I want you to repeat it back. Rejoice always. always. Pray constantly. constantly. Give thanks in everything. everything. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This is God's will for you. Great, let's do that again. Let's get this in our bones. Rejoice always. Pray constantly. Give thanks in everything. For this is God's will for you. In Christ Jesus. All right. Are you ready to do a little fill in the blank here? All right. Fantastic. Rejoice. Pray. Give thanks in. For this is God's for you in You guys are good. All right, you ready to say it with me? All right, jump in. This is from the Christian Standard Bible, by the way. So I'm sorry if you've memorized it somewhere else. But we're going to have the same phrasing here. Together, rejoice always. Rejoice always. Pray constantly. Give thanks in everything. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen? Amen. Please be seated. My hope is in the next three weeks, you have that down just really strong. So uh, if you need to work on it outside of here, I encourage you to do so. Rejoice always. We are going to look at two words today. Two words. Rejoice always. In Greek, it's pantote chirite. I won't make you (laughs) repeat that. Pantote chirite. Pantote is a word. The the root of the word is pan. It means all or everything. Uh, And it means always or at all times. The, the verb here, like I said, is a second person plural. In other words, it's saying you all. The, the, the South gets this right. We don't have in English a great way to say you when it means more than one person, it, except in the South where it says y'all, okay? So this is, this is what this means. Y'all pray constantly, Each one of you. He's talking to the church. Each one of you. Y'all, pray constantly. And um, the word for, uh, sorry, not pray constantly, rejoice always. That's what we're talking about this morning. Always is pantote. (laughs) Kairote. Rejoice always. Kairote, it comes from the Greek word chairo. Can you say chairo? Yeah, the, the little X thing there, it's kind of got a sound to it. Chairo. And it means to rejoice, to be glad, or to welcome. Okay, rejoice, to be glad, or to welcome. And this is a root form, meaning there's a lot of words that build off of this root. So the root is chairo, which means rejoice, be glad, welcome. And from this root, we get lots of words in Greek. For example, chara, which means joy. 
Eucharisto, which means to give thanks. Charis, which means grace. Charisma, which means gift. Charizomai, which means to forgive, to show favor, or to give freely. What that means is this. When you look at these words, joy, give thanks, grace, gift, forgive, show favor, give freely— Part of what's at the root of those words is this idea of rejoice. This idea of be glad. And so when you, when you come, and many faith traditions call the communion table the Eucharist. They come and they celebrate Christ's body broken and blood poured out for our sins in a, in a symbolic way. They call it the Eucharist. And so they come to give thanks and, and they rejoice that Christ has paid for their sins by shedding his blood on the cross. When you come to forgive, you, 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 at, the, at the foundation of forgiveness is joy. It's joy. When you, when you come to uh, experience grace, the unmerited favor of God, a very, you know, kind of classic academic definition, at the root of grace is joy. It's joy. And so, chairo is a very important word. Now, the idea of joy is something that's not just an outward expression or an inward feeling. It, it, it actually finds its best balance when experience and expression are closely related, all right? When experience of joy and expression of joy come together, that's when we find balanced joy. Biblically speaking, here's an important thing to note about joy. Joy comes from God, all right? This sets it in opposition to happiness. Now, happiness is not bad, but oftentimes happiness becomes subjective. It becomes something that we base upon our experience or we base upon where we're at currently in life or what we hope to achieve or something like that. Happiness is, is fine. That, that, that's fine, but it's different than joy. Joy is a gift that comes from God. Joy is something that is found in God alone. And, and what is important to remember, to realize, is that because joy is found and given by God, it describes a part of God's character. Did you know that God is a rejoicing God? Did you know that God is a rejoicing God? Thank you. <laughs> Appreciate that. Yeah, we can smile and have fun today. We're talking about joy, so smiling is good. God is a rejoicing God. Sometimes we have this impression of God that he's incredibly serious and that he really just wants to kind of keep us in a box and really want to control and manage our lives. He does care about us, but, but God's a God who rejoices. Sometimes we have an idea of God that he is distant or that he doesn't care about what goes on in my life and nothing could be further from the truth. He's a God who rejoices. I have a couple of verses I want to show you. Um, and just for the sake of time, you can see them on the screen. For example, in Isaiah 65, it says this. God says, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and I will be glad in my people. All right? I'll rejoice in Jerusalem, be glad in my people. The God of the Bible rejoices and finds gladness in those whom he has made and formed and fashioned after his image. Next, another verse. This comes from Isaiah 62. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. One of the great things I have the privilege of being involved in 
doing what I do, uh, it, are, are weddings. I, I get to go to a lot of weddings and get to be involved in a lot of weddings. And one of my favorite parts about um, weddings is when I'm standing up at the front of wherever the place is at, and the groom is right here, and we're waiting for his bride-to-be to come down. And you can see him kind of little, get, get a little nervous, kind of fidget back and forth, look anxiously, kind of f- figuring out what he's supposed to do, trying to remember not to faint, and all this good stuff. And and as, as he gets ready to see his bride turn the corner and come down, there's like a totally different glow that comes from his face. And you look at him and you're like, it's joy. That's, that's feeling expression and emotion on the inside and out. It, it, it's coming from a place that is really, really vibrant and rich. And then as she walks down the aisle, sometimes they, you, you see the tear cry, and you're just like, hold it together, buddy. You can do this. And, uh, and, and the bride walks down the aisle, and the groom rejoices. Weddings are joyful opportunities to celebrate God's goodness. And here it says that as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. On a wedding day, The bride and the groom are often the most filled with joy because they're looking forward to what God will do in their life that day and in the years to come. And God rejoices like a groom waiting for his bride. What a picture. Another picture comes from the book of Zephaniah, chapter 3. It says this, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Your God rejoices over you. What's interesting about Zephaniah, if you go and you look at the context, Zephaniah is one of those books where there's a little bit of judgment coming down, or a lot of judgment coming down, because the people of Israel have forsaken the Lord again. and, And they've turned from him, and yet God, rich in mercy, maintains his covenant faithfulness, and he rejoices over them. And he longs to bring his people, Israel, back into relationship and exult over them with loud singing. It's a great passage to study sometime. Um, and so God is a God who rejoices. And, and that's where we have to start. Because if we don't start with God rejoices, we can get joy all messed up in a whole bunch of different ways. Not only does God rejoice, God is a God who commands and he calls his people to rejoice. And this is throughout all of the Bible. Throughout all of the Bible. Um, We're going to be turning to Leviticus 23. So if you'd go ahead and make your way there. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. It's the third book in the Bible, the third book of the Torah. And um, maybe it's been a while since you've been there. It's not a frequent for many, um, but Leviticus 23 is where we're going to go. And I want to show you a chart while, you, while we're um, turning there. This is a chart of a calendar of Jewish holidays. Now, there's a lot of stuff going on here, but what I want you to notice is that there are certain festivals within the yearly cycle of the calendar for God's people, Israel. All right? There, there are, uh, for example, some of them you know, like 
Passover is one of those things that they celebrate every single year in the spring. And you come and then you have Shavuot. You have, well, you have a couple other ones there, but you have Shavuot, which is the next big major feast, also known as Pentecost. You come through the dry season and you come down to the month of Tishri, which is the seventh month in the Hebrew calendar. It's September slash October in our calendar. And the one that we're going to look at today is the festival of Sukkot, also known as tabernacles, also known as booze. And that's what we find in Leviticus 23. In Leviticus 23, God is laying out how Israel is supposed to come and celebrate the appointed times and or the festivals. Um, in as verse 1 and 2 say, the Lord spoke to Moses, speak to the Israelites, tell them these are my appointed times, the times of the Lord that you will proclaim as sacred assemblies. All right, so that's the context. Flip with me to uh, Leviticus 23 verses 39 and following is where we're going to pick it up. Sukkot is the third major big feast. In, in the Bible, it's actually called the Great Feast. And Sukkot, or Tabernacles, is essentially an eight-day party that celebrates the Lord's goodness. It follows another big festival, Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. And on Yom Kippur, and what leads up to Yom Kippur, you're looking at your sin, and you're, you're praying to God for forgiveness and all this kind of stuff. And then you come to Sukkot, and it's a big part of rejoicing in the provision and, and um, providence of God. Verse 39 of Leviticus 23 says, You are to celebrate the Lord's festival on the 15th day of the seventh month for seven days after you have gathered the produce of the land. There will be a complete rest on the first day and complete rest on the eighth day. On the first day, you are, you are to take the product of majestic trees, palm fronds, boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You are to celebrate it as a festival to the Lord seven days each year. This is a permanent statute for you throughout your generations. You must celebrate it in the seventh month. You are to live in booze for seven days. All the native born of Israel must live in booze so that your generations may know that I made the Israelites live in booze when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh your God. So Moses declared the Lord's appointed times to the Israelites. Did you catch? I tried to highlight it for you. In verse 40, you take these um, majestic trees, palm fronds, boughs of leafy trees, willows of the brook, and God calls his people to rejoice. He calls them to rejoice, to gather together for eight days and to rejoice in his provision. Now, what they would gather in is a sukkah. That's why it's called Sukkot. And this is a sukkah. It, it, it's, a, it's a temporary dwelling place. It's made out of things of the earth. And so as you would stay in this, you'd be able to look up through the cracks in the ceiling. You'd be able to see the night sky and be reminded that God made those things. As the children of Israel walked through the wilderness, not the most hospitable place, coming out, of the, um, coming out of Egypt, God met them and he provided for them in very distinct ways. For example, one time they didn't have water, so God provides water. Another time they didn't have food, so he provides manna, which means, what is it? Because they didn't know what it was, but it was food. Another time, there you go. Uh, another time, they, they wanted quail, and they were complaining about quail, and so God sent a whole bunch of quail until they were absolutely sick of eating quail. 
But God provided what they needed. Their sandals didn't wear out. Their clothes didn't wear out. Throughout this whole 40-year-long journey, a lot of rebellion in there, some following in there, throughout this whole 40-year-long journey, they dwelt in tents. And as they come out of that, God says, I want you to remember how I provided for you in the difficult moments of the wilderness and how I met your need and I was your supply. And so each year, they celebrate Sukkot and Asuka. And it's an eight-day party celebrating the goodness and provision of God. Now, it says in verse uh, 40 there that you're to take the products of palm fronds and majestic trees, leafy trees, willows of the brook. Um, the next slide shows you uh, the, these are those elements. And part of the festival of Sukkot is waving these things and having certain prayers and celebrations that happen. Another photo for you just to kind of see what happens at Sukkot. This is at the Western Wall, which is in Jerusalem. This is on Sukkot. And you can just see the, the Western Wall, which is, which is right here. That's, that's the closest place that, that um, Jewish people can be uh, to the Temple Mount. There's, uh, there's uh, some tunnels that you can go back in there as well. But, but this is where many people come to pray. This is the men's side. This is the women's side. And they gather to pray. But this is Sukkot, and there are people everywhere. And there's rejoicing and celebrating and prayers before the Lord. It's a time of great gathering within Israel. And so during Sukkot, as I've said, they dwell in Sukkahs, temporary dwellings, um, and they're reminded that God provides for them. God was sufficient and is sufficient for their every needs. And what I love about 23 verse 40 of Leviticus is it, is it commands Israel to rejoice. He doesn't say rejoice if you feel like it. He doesn't say rejoice if you can make it. He says rejoice. Rejoice. No option. Rejoice. Whatever's going on in your life, come and rejoice. Remember my goodness. Remember my provision. Remember my presence with you. And rejoice. Here's the thing. Rejoicing is first and foremost about God. It's all about God. When we find what we think to be joy in the circumstances of our life, it quickly breaks apart because life is filled with a lot of difficulty. Now, elsewhere in the scripture, of course, we are commanded to rejoice with those who rejoice. We're commanded to weep with those who weep. There's nothing wrong with weeping. There's nothing wrong about going through difficult times. But the power of rejoicing is that we come back to it and we're reminded of who God is and what God has done. And when we rejoice biblically, our minds and our thoughts are around and centered upon the God who has saved and redeemed his people. In other words... As one of my favorite Bible teachers, Dr. Dwight A. Pryor, says, and I'm going to steal this from him because it's so good, rejoicing is serious business. Rejoicing is serious business. It matters that we come to rejoice. It matters for our life and it matters for the people around us. Rejoicing is serious business. Turn with me, please, a couple books later to the book of 1 Chronicles, 1 Chronicles chapter 13. We're going to look at how a man named David, the beloved, 
David, which is the Hebrew name for David, means beloved in Hebrew. How he rejoices before the Lord. 1 Chronicles, 1 Chronicles chapter 13. Thank you for bringing your Bibles. I love to hear that. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. There's some at the back. If you need them this morning or even afterwards. 1 Chronicles chapter 13. We're going to read the first four verses together. David consulted with all his leaders, the commanders of hundreds and of thousands. Then he said to the whole assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you, and if this is from the Lord our God, let us spread out and send the message to the rest of our relatives in all the districts of Israel, including the priests and Levites in their cities with pasture lands, that they should gather together with us, Then let us bring back the ark of our God, for we did not inquire of him in Saul's days. Since the proposal seemed right to all the people, the whole assembly agreed to do it. What is happening here? Here's what's happening. Um, The ark has been separated from the nation of Israel for some time. We notice in verse 3 that it's during Saul's days. Saul is the king who precedes David. David has come into kingship over all of Israel. And he's setting up his foundation or his, his home base in Jerusalem. And he wants to bring the ark of God back to be in the center of his people. All right, the ark of, of God is what the presence of God dwelled in throughout the, um, throughout the wanderings through the desert, uh, in the wilderness. It, it's, it's what housed the, the, the presence of God in much of the Old Testament period. Now, there's a difference between the time of Saul and the time of David, as noted in here. And, and that's important to notice what's going on here. As I mentioned, David's name means beloved. And, and in 1 Samuel, it says, I will, as, as, um, as Saul had forsaken the Lord, had not followed his commands, God says, I'm going to place a king over Israel who will have a heart after mine. And here comes beloved David to rule over Israel. And David and Israel agreed to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to the nation. And, and as God dwelled and tabernacled um, in the Ark of the Covenant, they, they wanted to essentially become a... I'm trying to think of the word. They're trying to become a nation again whose eyes are set upon the Lord in all things. And this is part of it. And so in First Chronicles, they bring back the Ark of the God... And, uh, and Israel assembles as a nation. Um, but here's one of the important things that happens. As they do this, if you continue on reading, and for sake of time, we won't, but um, as you continue on reading, they, they gather and they're celebrating before the Lord, but they gather and they start to bring the ark in in a way that God had never prescribed the ark to be carried. Notice with me, please. Um, just a couple verses later, David places it on a cart pulled by oxen. There's people who are rejoicing, and we'll find in uh, verse 9, verse 8 of chapter 13, David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before God with songs and with lyres and harps, tambourines, cymbals, and trumpets. It was quite the party. When they came to Kidon's threshing floor, Uzzah reached out to hold the ark because the oxen had stumbled. Verse 10, then the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah and he struck him dead because he had reached out to the ark and so he died there in the presence of the Lord. 
And so what you have is you have what begins as a very joyous event ending not so joyous. And it actually says David is angry with the Lord because, or he's angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And he says in verse 12, how can I ever bring the ark of God back to me? And so David in verse 13 did not move the ark of God home to the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom's family. Now, this may seem rash. This may seem rash to, to, to understand why does God strike Uzzah dead because he tried to stable the cart. God is holy. God had taught his people how to carry his presence in the world at that time. He wanted it to be carried with gold-laden acacia poles by Levitical priests. And instead of finding it in that sort, it's on a cart pulled by oxen. And I'm thankful for how the Moody Bible Commentary describes this. They say this, they say, good intentions are no substitute for obedience. David and the nation had focused on the ark itself and the celebration surrounding it and not on the God whose presence was being celebrated in the ark. Let me read that again to you to help us make sense of why would God strike someone dead because of this. Good intentions are no substitute for obedience. David and the nation had focused on the ark itself and the celebration surrounding it and not on the God whose presence was being celebrated in the ark. It's really easy when we go to rejoice to think, I'm going to rejoice in however I want to rejoice. But one of the things that God wants to teach us is to rejoice and to honor him by being faithful to what he has called us to do. That's the type of thing that then people see. And they go, wow, you are different. Because you're not walking in your own fleshly patterns. You're walking by the Spirit of God. After some time, David returns to move the ark again. And this time, he obeys the word of the Lord and how it was to be uh, moved. In 1 Chronicles chapter 15, we find this uh, going on. David organizes the people to have it carried by Levites to Jerusalem with acacia poles that are gold-laden and and all these kind of things. In in case you want to see a photo of the ark, this is just a mock-up of it. Um, This is taken in a... um, in a demonstration of the temple in the southern part of Jerusalem. This is, this is part of the, um, the Holy of Holies place. And so this is roughly kind of what you might want to picture in your mind as far as we can tell. Verse 25 of um, chapter 15, if you look with me there, says this. It says, David, the elders of Israel, the commanders of thousands, went with, went with rejoicing to bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom. So after some time goes by, David says, no, we need to bring the ark back into our, our possession. It needs to be the center of all we do. Not it, him. God needs to be the center of all we do here. And so they bring it back and they come rejoicing. Verse 26 says, While the Levites were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with God's help, they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. Verse 27, David was dressed in a robe of fine linen, as were all the Levites who were carrying the Ark, as well as the singers and, I struggled with this word last night, Chekaniah. 
that's bad. Uh, but Chetaniah, the music leader of the singers. David also wore a linen ephod. So all Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant with, of the Lord with shouts, the sound of the ram's horn, trumpets and cymbals, the playing of harps and lyres. And the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord was entering the city of David. Now, what you should picture here is a really big party. All right? Notice what's going on. There's shouts, sound of ram's horn, trumpets, cymbals, playing of harps and lyres. I think it's the ESV that says there is um, loud music on harps and lyres. Anybody have an ESV? Yes, maybe? Loud, loud music, right? All right? There's a lot of stuff going on here. The people are celebrating. Why are they celebrating? Because they're bringing, they're bringing the presence of God back to dwell within their midst. Their hearts are focused upon God and God alone. They're focused upon worshiping him and obeying him, living as his people, dwelling with him in the land. And so there's dancing, singing, shouting, shofars, cymbals, loud music. It was worship unto God characterized by joy and obedience, spirit and truth. Now, one of the things that we have to maybe remind ourselves is that passion is very important. What we feel on the inside comes out, whether it's apathy, whether it's indifference, whether it's joy, whether it's happiness, all these things, they, they, they come out. But sometimes we have to tell our souls in the midst of what is going on, I am going to rejoice in the Lord because he is worthy of it. And so even as they come in, we have no idea what's going on in these individual people's lives, but they came and they rejoiced because God's presence was among them. Now, not all of them rejoiced, though. If you look at the next verse, in verse 29, it says, As the ark of the covenant of the Lord was entering the city of David, Saul's daughter, Michael, who is, by the way, David's wife, but notice the text says Saul's daughter, Michael looked down from the window. She saw a day, uh, King David leaping and dancing, and she despised him in her heart. She despised him in her heart. You can go to 1 Samuel and find out more about that story, but there's a couple points I want to make. The first is this. Joyful worshipers embrace biblical expression and truth. Joyful worshipers embrace biblical expression and truth. Um, one of the things, depending on what church tradition you're from or what faith community you belong to, worship looks different. Our, our response to who God is and what God has done can look different, all right? Even in this room, we've got some people who are more reserved. We've got some people who are more um, expressive. The point is this. Joyful worship must be biblical and it must be based in the truth of who God is. But there's, there's room there. And so in some contexts that are more maybe hands down, don't clap, don't move, stand still, it could be a little different to try and uh, open up their shoulders and clap to the Lord or shout to the Lord or make a loud noise on the harp and the lyre to the Lord. Equally so, we can get emotions before 
um, before what is right. In other words, we, we can say, I'm going to be passionate about this, but have our eyes fixed on something else. And so where, where there might be an expression that is biblical, what's behind the expression may not be a God word perspective. And we find this in part with Michael in this, in this chapter. Michael described as Saul's daughter. Remember, in the days of Saul, they did not seek the Lord. There's a huge difference between her father and her husband. Her husband was one who sought the Lord. He wasn't perfect, but he sought the Lord. When we find God is the center of joy and God is the center of our worship, that rightly places us in expressing our love for God in truth. Joyful worshipers embrace biblical expression and truth. Uh, Joyful worshipers focus upon the presence of God among us. Joyful worshipers do not concern themselves with how others view their biblical worship, but instead they invite others to join them in knowing him. Which means as a worshiper, one of the things we're doing, of course, we are blessing the Lord and we're responding to what God has done for us in his son, Jesus. That he died, that he rose again, that he gives us life by faith in him and him alone. But as we respond to that, how we respond can have a positive influence on those who are around us. Let me ask you a question. Are you a joyful worshiper of the living God? When you come to celebrate, and I don't mean just here, when you go out and you enter into your workday, are you a joyful worshiper of the living God? Do you seek to remember what God has done for you and to walk faithfully as he has called you to? A couple of verses later, in chapter 16, David writes a psalm of thanksgiving. It's a long song. It's actually a couple of psalms. It's reflective of a couple of psalms put together. But um, 1 Chronicles 16, 8 says this. Give thanks to the Lord. Call on his name. Proclaim his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Honor his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face always. Kind of sounds like Paul. Rejoice always. Why? Because rejoicing is serious business. When you come to worship the Lord, it's a serious endeavor. Now, I don't mean serious and somber. I mean you come with intention and with focus because God is worthy of it. That's what I mean by serious. Not, not just, oh, we're serious, we have to stay you know, very, very calm and arms down. I mean, we come with focus and intention, with purpose and meaning. You go into your day to say, God, you alone are worthy of all glory and honor. And God, we give it to you. And God, we rejoice in you this day. And so fast forward to 1 Thessalonians again. 1 Thessalonians is a book that I talked about last week, written to a church, written to a church who is facing some difficult times. Their faith in Jesus, the Messiah, is strong and is secure. And yet they're facing persecution from others outside of them. 
People look at their faith and they know that they're not a part of that world system because as they worship, as the, as the culture worships the gods of the day, there's these Jesus followers whose lives look really different. They don't go to pagan temple. They separate themselves as they have to from society so as not to dishonor the name of God. They're in that world, but they are not of that world and they pay the cost because the world hates the Messiah Jesus. People are hated because of his name. And so Paul says to them, rejoice always. He knows a few things about rejoicing. He's been to Jerusalem on Sukkot. He, he knows the story of David rejoicing before the Lord. More than that, he knows that God alone is worthy because God had brought him salvation one day on a road where he's blinded by light and he meets Jesus whom he had persecuted and he becomes a follower of him. And he tells these Thessalonian believers, even in the difficulty that you face today, rejoice because God is worthy of it. He is worthy of your worship. He's worthy of your adoration. He essentially says to them, rejoicing is serious business. Chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 says, You received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. If you remember from last week, that's all of Greece. That's a really big land. This church, news of their faith spread and they became examples for all the believers in those provinces. It's a big deal. They're called to walk worthy of the manner of Christ. And that is part of their worship unto God because, friends, our joy goes beyond the present. Paul instructs them later in the book to look beyond today and to look to a time when they will be forever with the Lord. He's essentially calling them to have their eyes set forward but to live in the present. And joy is one of the visible signs of God's work in them. How do we do this? A couple quick things, and then I'm gonna ask you to stand and sing, but a couple quick things. How do we do this? How do we pursue this? Maintain an eternal perspective. When I was a kid, my family and I, we would go um, sailing every now and then with some friends. Our, our pastor at our church was actually an expert sailor. And one year we went down to the Florida Keys. We went from Miami down halfway to the Florida Keys and just you know, ha had a boat and we were, we were sailing with them. And as a teenager, I was like, this is moving slow, sl so slow. You know, it's sunny, it's warm. And I'm like, can't we just get there? The thing about boating is this, whether you're going fast, whether you're going slow, on the way back we got stuck in a tropical storm, not stuck, we moved in a tropical storm. The thing about boating is that you have to know where you're going, but you also have to live in the moment. And that's helpful to me in what it means to maintain an eternal perspective. Always have our eyes fixed upon Jesus and what he calls us to do, but always be aware of what is going on in this moment. While we look forward to always being with the Lord, we must remember God has not left us as orphans. We have the followers of Jesus, the Messiah, have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And because of that, one of the things that we experience is joy. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. Love, joy. Which leads me to another thing. How do we do this? Well, we pray. We ask God, God, would you give me joy? Lord, 
It may not be my immediate response in this situation, but would you give me joy in the midst of this struggle? In the midst of this sin, God, would you help me turn from it and find joy in you? God, in the midst of this season of ailing health, would you give me joy? In, in the midst of mourning a loved one who has passed away, God, would you give me joy? God, in the midst of not knowing how I'm going to pay for next week's rent, would you give me joy? Lord, in work or in school, you know the struggle there. God, would you give me joy? Make that a prayer for your life. And as you pray for that, you'll be tested with opportunities to choose joy or to choose Irish muttering, as I like to call it. (laughs) The other thing is let others pray for you. Reach out to someone and say, I'm struggling. I'm struggling with joy. Would you pray that I would experience the joy of Christ in my life? Another thing, identify joy stoppers in your life. Where do you often lose joy? Is there a time, is there an action where where you look at your life and you go, yeah, I really begin to lose it right there. Maybe ask a friend, ask a spouse, ask a kid, hey, do you notice somewhere in my life that I tend to lose joy? Stop engaging in those moments if possible or seek to intentionally refocus your mind upon Christ and what he has done for you in those times. And finally, set aside time to purposefully rejoice in the Lord. I don't think it is by accident that God commands his people to gather before him in Leviticus 23 and to say, Israel, I want you to set aside eight days a year and I want you to rejoice because God knows how easily we lose joy and how sometimes we need to have patterns in our life that, grind, that ground us in who God is and what he has done. And they remind us of how God has provided for us Set aside time to purposefully rejoice before the Lord. It's my prayer that that happens for you in part here. But it doesn't happen just here. It, it happens as you open the text at home. It, it happens as you engage with God in prayer, intentionally at home. It, it, happens as, it happens as you have spiritual conversations with friends that go beyond just talking about whether or not the Lions will actually win today or not. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice always. Intention, a consistent time to remember God's truth, and like David, rejoice in God's presence and provision in your life. Because friends, rejoicing is serious business. Amen? Would you stand with us? Let's pray. Father, Our Father and our King, so often we go to other sources of joy that are not you. Lord God, forgive us. Forgive us for seeking things that are temporal and earthly, things that we think will bring us happiness. And yet, God, you are the only one who satisfies. You are the only one who meets our needs in full and complete measure. And God, we want to be a people who rejoice in you. We want to rejoice in the work that you have done to bring us
to relationship. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross. Thank you for rising again so that we might have life. The scriptures say, who for the joy set before you, you endured the cross, despising its shame. God, it was joy for you to go to the cross. And we say thank you because it has brought us life and meaning and purpose. And your spirit brings us joy this day. May we choose joy in all areas of our life. We pray for the sake of Jesus, our Messiah. Together we pray in his name and we say, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616 772 4377.